Uh, good evening. If you don't know me, my name is Dave Hinckley. I am a ruling elder here at University Reformed Church, as well as the Children and Youth Ministry Director on staff. And we, at our evening series here, evening service, are about halfway through uh, answering 10 hard questions about Christianity. My task tonight is the question, if Christianity is good, why have Christians done so many bad things? My own experience, uh, this question, or questions very similar to this question, have, have been one of the more common objections raised against faith in Christ. It can take different forms, this objection. Um, I've heard people ask about the Crusades or slavery and argue that since the faith has been used, or the Bible has been used to justify bad things, uh, it must be, therefore, untrustworthy. Another variation of this seems to be that Christians claim a moral high ground, but actually are just as bad or even worse than everyone else. Sometimes what's meant by a question like this is that a Christian or Christians have wounded the questioner or someone close to them. I think a, a more contemporary variation on this question has raised the stakes, arguing that the Bible teaches things that are immoral or cause harm to people today. So since, since different things are meant by this question or this objection, historical things, doctrinal things, things about personal re interactions with Christians, answering it... Uh, feels a little bit like trying to plug holes in a cracking dam. Uh, it's most likely as much a pastoral question as it is an apologetic one, and one night's teaching seems insufficient for the task of answering all that might be meant. Uh, in my own life, uh, as a young man with very little experience of the church, my perception of the church was that believers were either ignorant or actively immoral, probably predatory in some way. Uh, and the historical examples, which I knew very little also, uh, seemed just to confirm this. Uh, likewise, the moral teachings, which I found retrograde and assumed Christians did not actually follow, uh, I remembered Vividly, the image of Jimmy Swaggart crying and drawling, I have sinned against you to his congregation after being caught with prostitutes. My favorite punk bands at the time had songs about how Christian leaders just wanted your money. So when my fiance wanted to return to the faith of her childhood, get married in the church, I was willing, I really liked this girl, I still do, but I was not in any way eager. I was on guard against what I perceived to be a potential threat to the both of us. Uh, it's possible that uh, you here tonight feel or think something similar to what I felt, or you know someone with these questions. And as I said, there's so much that could be said in response, you kind of have to choose. So I want us to think about three things. First, 
I want us to think about what bad things, bad things are actually in view. Uh, and spend a little time thinking together about modern critiques uh, of the Bible and its moral teaching. Second, I think we should think about the pervasiveness of sin and how this question that's raised before us helps to illustrate the gospel to us. And finally, we should think about Jesus' own relationship to religious hypocrites and the life-transforming contrast that he presents to this question. So let's ask the Lord's blessing before we, we dive in. Father, help us tonight as we consider another reason that is offered against trusting you and your word. May this meditation tonight be a mercy on those who doubt and offer proper encouragement correction where it is needed. Help us as believers to, to grow in compassion for the lost, to, to promote the honor of salvation in your name, and to trust wholeheartedly in your word. And help us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, by the power of that same word. Christ's name that we ask, amen. Okay, so to start, what, what are the bad things that are in view? By starting here, I'm, I'm not denying that Christians have done bad things. It seems obviously to be the case that people who follow or who claim to follow Christ, whether they do authentically love him or simply claim his name, have done evil. It would be ridiculous to deny that. What I feel the need to address first are the claims that Christianity does evil in teachings that are not actually evil. Uh, when my oldest daughter was small and would run around outside and she would scrape her knee on the concrete, we would bring her inside and we would treat the wound with you know, one of those antiseptic wipes or rubbing alcohol or whatever, whatever it was. You know, the topical cleanser, and then put a Band-Aid on. We sometimes would have to use that, and she did not like it. She called it sting medicine. Uh, to her perspective, her limited perspective, we were doing something bad to her. Uh, but in reality, we were protecting her from something worse down the road. Sometimes, especially today in the culture that we live in, uh, it seems like when Christians teach or advocate for biblical teaching, biblical values, biblical teaching that actually promotes human flourishing, it's called evil. It's called hateful. Uh, it might be hard to hear, but telling you that you should not sin because sin will destroy you is not hateful or in any way a bad thing. Quite the opposite, in fact. And more than this, uh, modern sweeping claims that the Bible promotes oppression or systemic injustice are profoundly wrong and need refutation. There's no argument from me that the Bible gets used by false teachers to justify evil. No question, again. But what is asserted uh, today is that 
sometimes, by some today, is that the Bible itself is merely a tool for the powerful to hold the weak in place. None of the progressives that are, that are espousing this today say it as well as Nietzsche said it 150 years ago when he called the teachings of the Bible the slave morality, meaning the main purpose of uh, these teachings is to keep the masses occupied with virtues like meekness, humility, forgiveness, and turning the other cheek so that the ruling class could get on with living the real authentic life. This is a tragic, anachronistic irony. Look those up. There seems to be very little awareness of where modern ideas like justice, human rights, and the brotherhood of mankind come from, and even less awareness that these values have no real sense apart from the Christian worldview. Put it more simply, people who make sweeping claims like the Bible suppresses human rights, or the Bible props up slavery, or the Bible promotes the oppression of women, do not seem to understand that they are using the concepts and morals that were introduced to humanity by the Bible in order to complain about the Bible. It's like in one breath complaining about the box you're standing on and in the next breath complaining how you wish you could see better over the fence. It's like complaining about your ability to complain. I want to I prove this to you by using what most progressives today would probably consider a problematic text. This will be our first uh, text of the night. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 5 through 9. In Ephesians 5 and 6, Paul is, in, is laying out for uh, the, the Christians at Ephesus ethics and exhortations that uh, are about the Christian household. He has just explained how Christian husbands and wives should relate, and Christian fathers and their children, and now he turns his attention to servants and their masters. Paul writes, starting in verse 5, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bond servant or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Now, certainly it is the case, as you've heard, uh, that the biblical institution of slavery was very different from what the word slavery conjures up into our modern mind. But even as different as the two institutions are, we should keep most of our offense at the concept. Nobody thinks, well, well, slavery in the time of the Bible was a good thing. No, it was a bad thing. It was an evil, and it needed to be abolished. 
But the modern mind can read this passage, which is about uh, bond servants and their masters, and expect that Paul should have given a revolutionary call instead of commands about how to behave within the institution. Giving commands about the institution is seen as a tacit approval of it. This expectation on Paul is, could not be more anachronistic. The truth is that no one in the world at that time would have the abolition of slavery in their mind because no one in the world at that time had what Paul teaches here in this text in their mind. Look at the text. Bond servants are instructed to believe, or excuse me, to behave in a God-honoring way as they work. Why? Verse 8, knowing that where, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free. Paul isn't being too timid on this topic. He's just said the most revolutionary thing possible about this topic. The slave and the master are equal before the eyes of God. That is the most revolutionary thing that is possible to be said on this topic. You and I take that concept for granted today, but no one in the Roman Empire or any other empires around the world at the time thought that. We take it for granted because Paul's words here literally transformed the way humans look at this subject. Apart from this influence, if you were a master, you were favored by the gods. Those under your authority, your social inferiors, were yours to, dis to dispose of as you pleased. Now, there were some rules, but no one had ever said before, you and your, your master, slave and master, have an ontological, that is, value of being, uh, equality in the eyes of God. Paul says, slave and master, you both get the same reward. Paul even flips the normal script here in this text. You notice in the earlier parts of this text, he addresses the social superior and then the social inferior. Husbands, wives, fathers, children. Uh, here he says, slaves, masters. And as he does this, there is a brilliantly subtle but strong warning to the master. Verse 9, masters do the same to them. Pause there. What does that mean? The last active verb was render service. What on earth in the ancient world does it mean for a master, the social superior, to render service to his slave? And in what context would that make any sense? Keep going and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Paul here underscores again the idea that both the master and the slave are equal in value before God, but he also puts very subtly the threatening master in mind of his own heavenly master, who has every right to judge, 
and bring wrath against those who would mistreat a brother or sister. Without using the words, Paul says something like this very clearly. If you would wield the whip, remember that the whip of your heavenly master is far, far more terrifying. A call to free slaves doesn't really mean anything unless someone has convinced the world, the world that believes that might makes right, that slaves are objectively equal to their masters. And who do you think taught that to the world? We can do another we can do the same thing in another hard passage, hard. First Peter chapter three, verse seven. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to woman, the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of, Christ, of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. To the modern Western ear, the modern Western ear is scandalized by weaker vessel. But the ancient mind was scandalized by heirs with you of the grace of life. Aristotle, the father of science, like all science, believed that women weren't even fully human. He at least thought that Greek women were closer to fully human than uh, men and women from other ethnicities. The Roman household was built on the dominance of the pater familias. Women had dignity in this culture, in this time in history, based on their connection to and favor from the man in their house. He did with them as he pleased, and their only hope was his favor. Peter, on the other hand, says, your women deserve honor because they have the same inheritance that you do. Again, far from being the enemy of gender equality, the Bible introduced it to the world. This concept of the human's equal value before God, regardless of social status, gender, or race, enters into the human experience through the Bible and is the foundation of any modern notions of equality or human rights. Moreover, these concepts, equality human rights, become incoherent without the grounding that the Bible provides. Think about it. This will get a little abstract for you, but think about it. The force or objectivity of these concepts comes from their divine origin. When we talk about inalienable rights, what grounds the inalienableness of the rights? What makes it so that no one can take our rights away from us? It can't be common consent. It can't be democracy. Inalienable human rights only make sense with a sovereign, good, objective God as their anchor, and the only God like that is the God of the Bible. Human rights that are only rooted in common consent are by definition alienable. If, if each human life has equal value just because we all feel like it, woe to us when the majority stops feeling like it. Morality that is determined by democracy is the actual recipe for oppression. The fickle and finite moral reasoning of humans, even banded together with good intentions, will inevitably fail because without God in the picture, the objectivity of morality is illusory. 
This is something that's fascinating about Nietzsche. I mentioned him earlier. He saw this clearly. Uh, Moderns are like, we can find morality and equality without objectivity and, and meaning without God. And Nietzsche was like, no, that's, that's nonsense. You can't do that. Everything is relative, so will to power and may the best Superman win. That was Nietzsche's approach. Without a transcendent provenance to the concept of, of the universal brotherhood of man, human rights or equality, are as relative as the preference of the majority and the preference of those in power. By contrast, the God of the Bible, creator of the universe, who made mankind, male and female, in his image, redeemed for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, in whom there is neither slave nor free, is unshakable ground from which we can reason for the good of our fellow man. There's much more to say here, and lots of objections that I could take on. I've said a lot. Uh, suffice it to say, far from being the roadmap to oppression, as it is sometimes asserted today, the Bible is the only actual roadmap for objective equality of value of, of humans. And thus, its teachings, the Bible's teachings, are the only actual road out of oppression and injustice. Second thing I want us to think about, how should we, how should the reality of sin's pervasiveness affect the way we think about our question today? Recall our question, Christianity is good, why have Christians done so much evil? Now again, back when I was asking this question 30 years ago, I assumed that Christianity was just a people, just a religion of people trying to be good and judging others who they didn't think were good enough. I think many people perceive the Christian faith as merely a religion about improved morality. Did, did Jesus just come to teach us a better way to live? The world around us seems to see any religion that way, but particularly Christianity. But, but this fatally reduces Christianity. It is a profound misunderstanding of our faith. Jesus' calling of the tax collector Levi, later known as Matthew, the evangelist, is recorded for us in chapter 2 of the Gospel of Mark. After calling Matthew from his life of sin, Jesus visits his new disciples' home for dinner, and there are many other tax collectors and others from a sinful life there at the dinner. And the scribes and the Pharisees notice this, and they confront Jesus' disciples, asking them why their master eats with such people. And in verse 17 of chapter 2, it says, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The scribes and the Pharisees objected to Jesus' choice of company because a truly righteous man would not associate with such people. But Jesus' mission 
was to the unrighteous. His mission was not merely to call them to repentance, although it was that. He was sent to rescue them from their sin. It's not a course correction that Jesus offers to us. It is redemption through faith in him. Another way of asking our question of the night is to say, if Christianity is so good, why are Christians such sinners? And the simple answer is, because we are all sinners. And in fact, Jesus came to save sinners. Skeptic or doubter who might be listening, my case to you as a believer in Christ is not join me among the privileged and smart people. It's not be like me because I'm awesome and you stink. It's not a self-righteous appeal for you to join my cool squad. My case to you is that I, a man broken by my sin and hopeless without redemption, a slave to the world and to my own self-interest, have heard the voice of the healer. This Jesus, the hope of the lost, the only way off this sinking ship, I was dead, but now live. I was blind, but now see. And I want the same joy, meaning, and hope for you because I care about you. But more than that, and perhaps more importantly than that, because Christ cares enough about you, he has commanded me to present this offer of hope to you. I in no way mean to minimize the sin that an individual Christian may have committed against you. But if sin is as bad and pervasive as the Bible says it is, then of course you've been hurt by the sin of a Christian. It's probably safe to say that if you know a Christian, you've been hurt by their sin. Not because they are Christian, but because they are human and not yet free of their sinful nature. Because sin is ubiquitous, and although it has been atoned for, sin has not yet been cured. Sin is the natural state of the human after the fall, and the only human ever free of it was Jesus himself. Now, hear me clearly. We, Christians, should do better because of the great hope that we have, because of what we know, we should be better. But the reality of sin will always be with us until the, the new heavens and the new earth. And, skeptic or doubter, I, I want you to consider this. The existence of sin, regardless of its source, testifies to the profound brokenness of this world around us and the profound need for a solution to this problem. Every sin causes pain. Every sin causes suffering. And the pain of sin causes every one of our souls to cry out. Every one of our souls cries out that things are not as they should be. This question itself, our question of the night, is a manifestation of that crying out. The question affirms the way things should be and is, in a way, a lament that things are not that way. 
So, doubter, I present this to you. If you can see that, if you can see the brokenness that sin has caused, maybe the brokenness that the sin of a Christian has caused to you, can you also see the brokenness that your own sin has caused? Not saying that you necessarily have done great bad things, or even that the sin that you have done to others is as great as the sin that's been done to you. Not saying that at all. I'm asking you if you see that the problem facing the world, the problem in the heart of each Christian is also the problem in your own heart. We all come before Christ as broken sinners in need of his rescue. You and I come before a throne of grace as imperfect people, as the sick in need of a healer, The good news of Jesus Christ is that his death began the recreation of all things. The good news is that God has fixed the problem of sin and the suffering and the damage that it has caused by sending his son to live the sinless life, to die the sinner's death, and to overcome death on the third day. It may seem paradoxical to you But sin, any sin, even the destructive sin of someone who claims to be a Christian, is just an illustration of the brokenness and neediness of this world. And the solution, the only solution, is Jesus himself. Jesus himself is the absolute counterexample to this uh, sin, hypocrisy, and destructiveness final thing that I think we should think about in relation to our question of the night is Jesus' own relationship to the religious hypocrites. I told you that tonight's question was a a question that I asked before I became a believer. And it was a question that I posed to Tom Stark, the founding pastor of URC those decades ago. Aren't Christians just after self-interest, and aren't they just hypocrites? Aren't Christians the ones on TV who want to take the money of the weak-minded and offer false hope? Tom's strategy with me was for us to simply read together Matthew 23, starting in verse 25. This will be our uh, third passage that we're, we're looking at tonight. Uh, Jesus is speaking to uh, the crowd, and he is speaking about these uh, scribes and Pharisees who have been so against him. Starting in verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Now, at the time, I needed to learn what a Pharisee was and what this context was. Uh, These were the religious leaders at Jesus' time who were threatened, very threatened, by his ministry. And here is his assessment of them and his rebuke to them. Your life is like a dish. The outside of the dish, he says, 
may be clean. You spend time making the outside look good. But the inside is full of poison. The external life, your rhetoric, can mask evil motives and even predation. Think about it. Is there an easier way for someone to gain trust for the purpose of taking advantage than to present himself as religious and as righteous? Jesus goes on in verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. These religious leaders at the time were exactly, are exactly the people that our question of the night has in mind. Uh, and they were the ones seeking to put Jesus to death for what he said to them and what he did uh, in love to the people, what he taught. Uh, these are people who claim the name of God, but in fact are servants of their own desires. These are the ones who opposed Jesus as he taught the truth, as he healed the sick, as he preached good news to the poor in spirit. And you can almost hear Jesus asking a similar question to our question tonight. But his answer is not, so get rid of the faith. His answer is, turn to the one who is above all others trustworthy. His answer is, turn to me. Tom's approach with me was not to deny that Workers of evil took God's name in vain and did evil things. Why would he do that? Rather, it was to point out that evil religious leaders uh, were not only a part of my experience, they were a part of Jesus' experience. Part of what Jesus did in his earthly ministry was to set himself up in contrast to that kind of abuse of authority, to that kind of sin and injustice. The, the truth, it is true, I'm going to say this carefully, it is true that the truth of Christianity rests upon the trustworthiness, morality, and authority of an earthly human representative of that truth. But it rests only on one of them. Only on one of those human representatives. Jesus Christ himself. The truth of Christianity from front to back, first to last, top and bottom, is Jesus himself. Again, unbeliever, skeptic, doubter. The question before you tonight is not whether or not I am a good representative of Christ. That could not be a more important question for me Personally, that question needs to shape who I am above all other considerations. But my righteousness is not your most important question. Your question is about the one who set himself in contrast to the hypocrites. 
who loved us enough to be unjustly put to death by those hypocrites on our behalf, whose teaching transformed the human conversation from tribalism and the ethics of domination to ontological equality. This is the one that stands before you and who offers to you freedom from slavery, freedom from slavery to earthly passions, who offers your soul meaning, who offers truth, the hope of eternal blessedness. Do not pass by this great and gentle Savior because you have met or heard about some jerks who claimed to act in his name. And let me say again, this call to you, this offer of rest and peace to you, is not my offer. I pass it along. I pass along to you what I have heard myself. As imperfect a messenger as I am, I am trying to present to you the offer of the one who is perfect. The one who is trustworthy. The one who is sure. He is the one who is calling to you today to trust in him and find your redemption. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you humbly as sinners before the throne of grace. We acknowledge that we have not lived as we should before the watching world. We acknowledge that our only hope is in your mercy to us. And we rejoice that this, this hope, this hope in your mercy is in actual fact the safest place to be. Resting not upon our performance, but upon the freely offered promise of grace because of the glorious and sure work of Jesus Christ. He deserves all our praise. He deserves all glory. And he deserves our lives offered as a living sacrifice. Help us. Help us, we ask. Command what you will and grant us the ability to do what you command. And Lord, for those who are here or listening who do not know the joy and soul's rest of union with Christ by faith, we ask that you might transform their hearts even now Turn their hearts to you that they might receive mercy. It is in the great name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.